You're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. Welcome to today's reading for the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Monday, February 26th. I'm Julia Witt from Drake University. Here's our first story. All right, our first story is on immigration legalization. Could Iowa follow example in Texas? Texas AG moving to shut down migrant shelter by Tom Burton from the Gazette. Immigrant workers and Catholic charities worry a package of bills being advanced by Iowa Republican lawmakers would criminalize and could lead to the closure of faith-based migrant shelters and civic engagement organizations to house or transport asylum seekers. Republican Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton is suing Catholic migrant shelter Annunciation House under similar legalization signed into law in that state to turn over information about the guests they serve. Annunciation House, a network of shelters that serves migrants, sought relief from the Attorney General's demand to immediately release information about its clients. The state denied the extension, so the Catholic nonprofit sued the state, requesting a court rule on which documents the group must hand over to the Attorney General. Paxton, in response, announced his office was suing the organization for failing to comply with the demand and accused the religious group of engaging in human smuggling and of, quote, worsening illegal immigration. Texas Governor Greg Abbott last year signed a law being challenged as unconstitutional by the U.S. Justice Department, allowing law enforcement officials to arrest people that they suspect of being migrants who crossed into the country illegally. It would also allow judges to order their removal and enlist law enforcement to transport migrants to the border so they can return to Mexico, whether or not that is their country of origin. Republicans in the Iowa House and Senate have advanced similar legislation. The Iowa City Catholic Worker House, like Annunciation House in El Paso, Texas, helps sponsor and resettle asylum seekers and provides food, housing, clothing, transportation, accompaniment, and connections to legal assistance, school enrollment, and supportive care. Both both organizations work with Immigration and Customs Enforcement and the Department of Homeland Security to house house people whom agencies have processed and released who often have been permitted into the country while they await hearings. This is what is at stake in Iowa if lawmakers pass anti-immigration legislation here, according to a, quote, action alert email and online petition sent last Thursday to 2,000 Catholic worker house supporters. Not only will essential workers with a precarious immigration status be put at even more risk, faith-based groups that serve and organize immigrant workers like Escucha Mi Voz, and the Iowa City Catholic worker will also be targeted. A top House Republican said lawmakers amend the bill, amended the bill, excuse me, so as not to apply to churches, charities, or people who in good faith are trying to take care of good people. What would the proposed Iowa immigration bills do? Senate File 2340 and House File 2567 would make it a state felony to re-enter Iowa after being previously deported from the U.S., State courts would be permitted to order the renewal, the removal of immigrants arrested under the new state law, and local officials would be given legal immunity when assisting in immigration enforcement measures. 
officers and state agencies would be cleared to transport undocumented migrants to ports of entry to make sure they comply. Law enforcement officers would not be allowed to arrest or detain an undocumented migrant on the grounds of a public, private, on a public or private school, place of worship, at a healthcare facility where a migrant is receiving medical treatment or those receiving a medical examination for sexual assault. State courts also would be prohibited from suspending or interrupting prosecution of someone whose federal immigration status is pending or will be initiated. House File 2608 would make it a felony to encourage or induce a person to enter or remain in the country in violation of federal law by concealing, harboring, or shielding that person from detection. The bill was amended to specifically to specify a person committing a, a I'm sorry, a person commits the offense of smuggling or of person if done knowingly for payment or some other benefit. Republican Steve Holt, who chairs the House Judiciary Committee and is the lead Republican on the bill, said the modified language is meant to exempt churches, charities, and other nonprofits that provide aid to immigrants and refugees. I don't know that much about the Texas case other than to say what we're doing to what we're trying to do is not that, Holt said. We're trying to go after individuals who are smuggling, trafficking people into the country illegally or into the state illegally. We're not interested in going after church organizations or anything of that kind. All right, our next story is Legislative Session Might Preview Election Divisions by Kaylee McCullough, M-C-C-U-L-L-O-U-G-H, from the Lee Gazette, Des Moines Bureau. Previews of the 2024 election are playing out in the Iowa legislature this year as lawmakers debate bills on immigration, crime, abortion, and education, which will likely be top issues of the campaign trail ahead of November. Each member of the Iowa House of Representatives is up for re-election this year, along with half of Iowa state senators. Republicans hold sizable majorities in both chambers, with 64 out of 100 House seats and 34 out of 50 Senate seats. With the presidential election at the top of the ticket in November, this year's elections are likely to be dominated by national issues, said University of Iowa political science professor Tim Hagelin. Sometimes the state legislative agenda can be an issue in particular districts, whether it's the House or the Senate or the state level but quite often they're more likely to be driven, at least to a certain extent, by what's going on at the national level, Hegel said. To the extent that more local news, more local issues do motivate the election, Hegel said it's too early to know what will be at the top of the list. We'll start to see this a little more once the legislative session is over and we see what we've got and what the Democrats see what they can do with it in terms of energizing their base and the Republicans their base too, he said. Democrats to run on abortion, people over politics. Iowa's minority Democrats are poised to make abortion and reproductive rights a clear focus of the election. They have proposed legislation to enshrine abortion rights into the state's constitution, constitution, I'm sorry, reinstate the federally funded family planning program, expand postpartum Medicaid coverage, and allow birth control without a prescription. Democrats nationally see abortion as an issue that can win them votes in suburban areas and among women in key races in states in 2024. In Iowa, Republicans passed a law last year to ban abortion once cardiac activity can be detected in a fetus or embryo. 
The bill is currently blocked while the Iowa Supreme Court weighs its constitutionality. Iowa State Democrats said abortion would be a key issue as they seek to wrest control of toss-up seats in November. Senator Pam Jochum, Jochum, J-O-C-H-U-M, Democrat from Dubuque, who leads the Senate Democrats, said abortion rights are supported by a clear majority of Iowans. That is one issue that continues to bubble up, and that is Iowans are very concerned about the number of freedom and rights that have been taken from them over the past couple of years. She said, We believe we need to stand firm and let people know where we stand as Democrats and what we're going to fight for this coming election cycle. House Democrats have had a mantra over the last two years to justify their political priorities and their legislative agenda, people over politics. The caucus has proposed a package of bills that are supported by a wide majority of the state's voters. They accuse Republicans of voting and passing bills to serve, quote, special interests at the expense of Iowans. Democrats make up a minority in both chambers, and the bills they proposed have not been taken up for consideration. House Minority Leader Jennifer Confrist of Windsor Heights and this month, the Republicans are trying to govern by headline, rather than addressing the needs of Iowans on issues like health care, housing, and wages. She said Democrats will be talking with voters after about Republicans' efforts to expand school choice and ban abortion, as well as the message that Democrats are advocating for popular policies. What Republicans are proposing is what special interests tell them that they want, she said. We are the ones listening to Iowans, and we are going to be pointing that out over and over again. Republicans to campaign on tax cuts and economy. Republicans have repeatedly said that past elections are evidence Iowans are happy with their governance and confident in their policies. Republicans have expanded the majorities in both chambers since gaining a trifecta of the House, Senate, and Governor in the 2016 election. Republican Matt Winchdel, I don't know how to say that one, W-I-N-D-S-C-H-I-T-L of Missouri Valley, the House Majority Leader, said the party's candidates would be campaigning on their history of improving the economy and tackling the issues important to Iowa voters. We're constantly trying to improve our educational standard and make sure our kiddos get the best education they possibly can, and we're providing for the needs of Iowans, he said. Whether that be infrastructure, law enforcement, but we're also being wise stewards of the taxpayer dollar and trying to make sure that when the government doesn't need the tax dollars, that we return those in a responsible and equitable manner. Winch did, I'm so sorry, I don't know that one, said it was too early to say which legislative achievements from this year Republicans would, pe- would run on, but he is looking forward to passing further individual income tax cuts. A number of bills Republicans have advanced align with the national issues the party will likely be running on in 2024, including cracking down on crime and illegal immigration. In passing bills targeting undocumented immigrants, Republicans have said the bills are necessary because of the record high rate of unlawful border crossings that have been documented under President Joe Biden. The problem is we've seen 7 million people come into this country illegally under the leadership of President Joe Biden, said Republican Taylor Collins from Minneapolis when advancing a bill to revoke in-state tuition from undocumented immigrants. And at some point, we're going to have to address that issue. Border security 
It will be a major campaign issue for Republicans nationally heading into the election as they have sought to depict Biden as abandoning his duty to keep a secure border and prevent illegal crossings. According to, the re- to a recent Pew survey, 77% of Americans described the situation at the border as either a crisis or a major problem, while another 17 described it as a minor problem. Winchdill? Winch said the issues have a prominent focus this year because lawmakers are hearing about them from constituents. The national scene does sometimes drive those trends, but some of these things have been drafting long before the polling data showed that illegal immigration said the border crisis was something that was top of mind to caucus goers. He said, Iowa House Speaker Pat Grassley of New Hartford said Republicans are not approaching policy any differently this year because of a because of the upcoming election. I don't know that we've been any different in laying this out this session, similar to the way we did last session, he said. So whether it's an election year or not, we want to try to show Iowans that our vision would, what our vision would look like. That vision, Grassley said, includes a stable tax climate, low regulations, school choice, and accountability around the spending of taxpayer dollars. Iowa State Majority Leader Jack Whitford of Grimes said it was in a recent appearance on Iowa Press on Iowa PBS that he's confident about the Senate Republicans' chances in 2024. Iowa is probably in the strongest position maybe it ever has been, and we have the biggest surplus we've ever had, he said. And so, we're going to tell our story, we're proud of our story, and what we have done in the majority, and what we've done with the trifecta. I feel very confident about the elections this year. Will presidential candidates help or hurt local candidates? Depending on a state house candidate's district, the presidential candidates at the top of the ticket may be a tricky subject to navigate, Hagel said. In toss-up House and Senate districts, where moderate and independent voters will decide the election, enthusiasm about Biden and Trump, the likely Republican nominee, will likely be lower than the Democratic and Republican strongholds in the state. Candidates have net negative approval ratings among independent voters nationally, according to recent polling, though Iowa's no-party voters lead more conservative. Candidates in those districts may look for ways to contrast themselves with their party's presidential candidate or keep their more unpopular issues at a distance, Hegel said. You'll probably try to distance yourself from that person to some extent, or it may be that the local issues dominate rather than something at a national level. He said, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Candidates also may try to tie their opinion to unpopular positions or actions of the opposing party's legal leader, Hegel said. The leaders of both parties, though, have largely fallen behind their expected presidential candidates. Whitver said on Iowa Press, Trump is the GOP's, quote, best chance to win election this year. Jokum said in an appearance on Iowa Press that Democrats should be more vocal in touting Biden's accomplishments. I think that in general, Democrats and a lot of no-party voters think that overall, Joe Biden has done a pretty good job, she said. And it's our job as Democrats to get out and tell people what he's done and what he's accomplished, And we are going to do that. Okay, we're going to move on to Nation in the World. Ceasefire in the works. Netanyahu says deal would delay Rafah offensive somewhat. An Israel military offensive in Gaza's southernmost city of Rafah could be, quote, delayed somewhat 
if a deal is reached with for a week-long ceasefire between Israel and Hamas, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said Sunday, and claimed that total victory in the territory would come within weeks once the offensive begins. Netanyahu confirmed to CBS that a deal is in the works, with no details. Talks resumed Sunday in Qatar at the specialist level, Egypt's state-run Al-Qahera, Q-A-H-E-R-A, TV reported, citing an Egyptian official as saying discussions would follow in Cairo with the aim of achieving the ceasefire and release of dozens of hostages held in Gaza as well as Palestinians imprisoned by Israel. Meanwhile, Israel is nearing the approval of plans to expand its offensive against the Hamas militant group Tarafa on the Gaza-Egypt border, where more than half the besieged territory's population of 2.3 million have sought refuge. Humanitarian groups warn of a catastrophe. Rafa is Gaza's main entry point for aid. The U.S. and other allies say Israel must have been must avoid harming civilians. U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan told NBC that President Joe Biden hasn't been briefed on the Rafa plan. We believe that this operation should not go forward until or unless we see a plan to protect civilians, Sullivan said. Heavy fighting continues in parts of northern Gaza, the first target of the offensive, where the destruction is staggered. We're trapped, unable to move because of the heavy bombardment, said Gaza City resident Ayman Abu Awad. Awad. In nearby Jab- Jabalia, market vendor Um Ayad showed off a leafy weed that people pick from the harsh, dry soil and eat. We have to feed the children. They keep screaming they want food. We cannot find food. We don't know what to do, she said. Also on Sunday, Israel's defense minister vowed to step up attacks on Lebanon's Hezbollah militant group, even if a ceasefire is reached with Hamas in the Gaza Strip. Hezbollah, which has been exchanging fire with Israel throughout the war in Gaza, has said it will halt its nearly daily attacks on Israel if a ceasefire is reached in Gaza. But Israel... Israeli Defense Minister said that anyone who thinks a temporary ceasefire for Gaza will also apply to the Northern Front is, quote, mistaken. Felipe Lazzarini, L-A-Z-Z-A-R-I-N-I, Commissioner General of the UN Agency for Palestinians, said that they haven't been able to deliver food to northern Gaza since January 23rd. Israel said that 245 trucks of aid entered Gaza on Sunday, fewer than half the number that entered daily before the war. A senior official from Egypt, which along with Qatar is a mediator between Israel and Hamas, has said the draft ceasefire deal includes the release of up to 40 women and older hostages in return for up to 300 Palestinian prisoners. Zelensky, death toll at 31k. Defense minister says delays in aid costly for people and territories by the Associated Press. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said Sunday that 31,000 Ukrainian soldiers have been killed in action in, excuse me, in the two years since Russia launched its full-scale invasion. Zelensky said the number was far lower than estimates given by Russian President Vladimir Putin's government. 31,000 Ukrainian military personnel have been killed in this war. Not 300,000, not 150,000, 
not whatever Putin and his deceitful circle have been lying about. But nevertheless, each of these losses is a great sacrifice for us, Zelensky said at the Ukraine Year 2024 forum in KYIV. The Ukrainian leader said he wouldn't disclose the number of troops that were wounded or missing. He also said that tens of thousands of civilians were killed in occupied areas of Ukraine, but said that no exact figures would be available until the war was over. We don't know how many of our civilians were they killed. We don't, he said. It's the first time that Kyiv has confirmed the number of its losses since the start of Russia's full-scale war on February 24, 2022. Russia has provided few official casualty figures. The most recent data from the Defense Ministry, published in January 2023, pointed to just over 6,000 deaths. Although reports from U.S. and U.K. officials put that number significantly higher. The U.S. intelligence report, declassified in mid-December 2023, estimated that 315,000 Russian troops had been killed or wounded in Ukraine. If accurate, that figure would represent 87% of the roughly 360,000 troops Russia had before the war, according to the report. Independent Russian news outlet Mediazona said Saturday that about 75,000 Russian men died in 2022 and 2023 fighting in that war. A joint investigation published by Mediazona and Medusa, another independent Russian news site, indicates that the rate of Russia's losses in Ukraine is not slowing and that Moscow is losing about 120 men a day. Also on Sunday, Ukraine Defense Minister Rustin Umarov U-M-E-R-O-V, said a half of all Western military support promised to Ukraine fails to arrive on time, complicating the task of military planners and ultimately costing the lives of soldiers in Russia's war. Umarov said each delayed aid support, aid shipment means Ukrainian troops loses and underscored Russia's superior military weight. Commemorations to mark the second anniversary of the war on Saturday brought expressions of continued support, new bilateral security agreements, and new aid commitments from Ukraine's Western allies, but Umarov said that they still need to deliver their commitments to Ukraine is to have any chance of holding out against Russia. We look to the enemy. Their economy is almost $2 trillion, he said, adding that they were up to 15% of official and non-official budget funds for the war, which constitutes more than $150 billion. He said that whenever a commitment doesn't arrive on time, we lose people, we lose territories. Haley stays in race despite loss in South Carolina, from the Associated Press. Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley says it's not the end of our story, despite Donald Trump's easy primary victory in South Carolina, her home state where the one-time governor had long suggested her competitiveness with the former president would show. Defying calls from South Carolina Republicans to exit the race, Haley traveled Sunday to Michigan, which holds its primary on Tuesday. In the less than 24 hours following her Saturday night loss to Trump, Haley's campaign said that she had raised $1 million from, quote, grassroots support supporters alone. A bump, they argued, quote, demonstrates Haley's staying power and her appeal to broad swaths of the American public. 
But with Sunday also came the end of support for Haley's campaign from Americans from, for Prosperity, the political arm of the powerful Cook, Cook Network. Excuse me. In a memo first reported by Politico and obtained by the Associated Press, AFP Action Senior Advisor Emily Cito wrote that while the group, quote, stands firm behind our endorsement of Haley, it would focus our resources where we can make the difference, redirecting spending toward U.S. Senate and House campaigns and away from Haley's presidential bid. AFP Action endorsed Haley's campaign in November. In addition to the rally in voter-rich Oakland City, Michigan, northwest of Detroit, on Sunday evening, she scheduled a Monday event in Grand Rapids. I'm sorry, Grand Rapids, a Western Michigan Republican hub. Vigils held around U.S. for Oklahoma teen who died from Digest. Vigils took place across the nation on Friday and Saturday for an Oklahoma teenager who died the day after a fight in a high school bathroom in which the non-binary student claimed to be the target of bullying. Next, Benedict, a 16-year-old Oklahoma student who identified as non-binary and used they-them pronouns, got into an altercation with three girls in an Owasso high school bathroom who were picking on Benedict and some friends. The girls attacked Benedict for pouring water on them, the teen told police in a video released Friday. Vigils for Benedict were held in Boston, Minneapolis, and Huntington Beach, California. Others were held or planned in several states, including Washington, New Jersey, New York, and Texas. You're listening to the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Monday, February 26, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Week radio reading information service for the blind and print handicapped in Des Moines. I'm Julia Wood from Drake University. Iris volunteers love to hear from listeners. If you have any comments or questions about this or any Iris program, please call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa at 515-243-6833. All right, we're going to move on to obituaries. There were none for... Monday, so these are Sundays. Melvin Meritz, M-E-L-V-I-N-M-A-R-I-T-Z. Melvin Leroy Meritz, 85, of Council Bluffs, Iowa, died at home on February 21, 2024, with his wife and family. He was born in Omaha, Nebraska in 1938 to parents Betty and Leslie Meritz. He was the oldest of 11 kids. Mel attended and graduated from Omaha Technical High School. Always smiling, laughing, loving, and a very caring man. He loved life and making people happy, especially while dancing with the ladies. He was adored by Eileen and all of the family and countless friends. He was a champion golfer and a number one tennis player at Riverview in Arizona. He played daily until the age of 80. He was a man of many hats. He was most proud of being a police officer, a detective, and his children. Mel was preceded in death by his mom and dad, sisters Sandy, Nancy, daughter Julie, and previous wives Sonny and Ruth. He is survived by his loving wife Eileen, whom he cherished and loved, siblings Karen, Leslie, Jim, Pamela, Darlene, Mike, Robin, Scott, children Jay, Cindy, Marcy, eight grandchildren, 
14 great-grandchildren, Eileen's children, Brenda, Peggy, Michael, four grandchildren, and hundreds of nieces, nephews, great-nieces, and great-nephews. He loved every one of you dearly. A celebration of life will be held at a later date. Donald R. Chapman, D-O-N-A-L-D-C-H-A-P-M-A-N. Donald Rolf Chapman, age 72, of Council Bluffs, Iowa, passed away February 23, 2024. He was born on January 16, 1952, in Council Bluffs, Iowa, to Billy and Betty Chapman. Don graduated from Lewis Central High School and later became a licensed third-grade engineer working several years at IWCC and Jenny Edmonton Hospital. He enjoyed being creative and liked working with his hands. He was always able to make something usable out of nothing. Don was smart, kind-hearted, and if he needed something fixed, he would always offer his expertise to fix it without any hesitation. You might say he was a jack-of-all-trades. We will surely miss his presence in our lives. He was preceded in death by his dad, Billy, and sister Dorothy. Donald is survived by his mother, Betty, sisters Deb Chapman and Regine Clifton, daughter Annie Chapman, sons Billy Chapman and Jesse Benson, four grandchildren, nieces, nephews, family, and friends. There is no service at this time. All right, we're going to move on to sports now. This is an article on NASCAR from Atlanta titled Suarez Wins Thrilling Three-Wide Photo Finish by Charles Odom from the Associated Press. Daniel Suarez hoped but wasn't certain he was the winner after the closest finish ever at Atlanta Motor Speedway. Then came the photo evidence. Suarez edged Ryan Blaney and Kyle Busch in a three-wide blur at the line to win a crash-filled NASCAR Cup Series race on Sunday. The second career win in 253 Cup races for Suarez set off a celebration that included a long series of congratulations from other drivers for the popular native of Monterrey, Monterrey, Mexico. It was a very special moment, said Suarez, who entered this contract year with his future seemingly uncertain with track house racing. I was just hoping. I saw the tower and thought I was first. I thought I had it, but then they said there was a review. The review confirmed the first win for Suarez since June 2022 at Sonoma. It was his first victory on a speedway, and he said he's not satisfied after locking up a spot in the playoffs in only the second race of the year. Some people actually told me you can relax now you're in the playoffs, Suarez said. Hell no, my goal is to win more than one race. This is not relaxing here. The goal is for you to not be surprised when the 99 is in victory lane. Bush, who won Saturday's truck race, moved to the middle between Blaney, the 2023 Cup champion, and Suarez to set off the dramatic finish. Blaney was second, only by 0.003 seconds behind, and Bush was third. It was fun racing, but just a couple inches short, Blaney said. I'm happy for Daniel, though. That was fun racing him and Kyle. That was fun. Suarez gave credit to Bush, another Chevrolet driver, for providing a late push. It's good to see Daniel get a win, Bush said. We were helping each other being Chevy team partners and working together there. Shows that when you do have friends, you can make alliances that they 
do seem to work and that it was a good part of today. A massive pileup of at least 16 cars on the second lap was the biggest in the history of Atlanta Motor Speedway and set the pace for the procession of wrecks. The crash left many cars heavily taped for the remainder of the afternoon. The intensity picked up when Austin Sindrick went to the bottom of the track in his team Penske Ford for a, a four-wide pass to take the lead with 50 laps remaining. Mitchell McDowell, who was on Saturday, who on Saturday won his first pole in his 467th start, won the first stage but collided with Daytona 500 champion William Byron while trying to slow down to enter pit row in the second stage. McDowell suffered right front damage, and each car fell one lap behind before McDowell made his way back to the lead midway through the final stage. He finished eighth. Close finish. In addition to Atlanta's closest finish, it was the closest finish at any 1.5-mile track and the third closest cup finish since electronic scoring was established in 1993. There were 10 cautions and an Atlanta record 48 lead changes. Gilliland's best. Tom Gilliland led 58 laps, the most of his career, and especially notable for a third-year driver who led a combined 11 laps in his first two seasons. He finished 26th. The 23-year-old Gilliland, a North Carolina native, looked at home on the Atlanta track with a Georgia Peanuts logo on the hood of his front-row motorsports forward. St. John's upsets number 15 Creighton, college basketball, men's top 25 recap from the Associated Press. Dressed in white from head to toe, Rick Pitino and his St. John's players handed number 15 Creighton a humbling defeat. Denise Jenkins scored a season-high 27 points, and St. John's shredded the Blue Jays 80-66 on Sunday for its best win yet under the Hall of Fame coach. Jordan Dingle added 18 points, and the Red Storm finally closed out a quality conference opponent at following a string of blown leads. They put together a clinical performance from start to finish in front of a roaring, chanting crowd at... 12,061 at Madison Square Garden, making all 10 free throws and racking up 24 assists to only three turnovers while holding the Blue Jays to six for 26 shooting, just 23%, from three-point range. I think we learned a lot tonight what great basketball looks like, said Patino, who is in his first season at St. John's. On the sideline, a 71-year-old Patino looked a little like Colonel Sanders in his all-white suit and shoes at the Red Storm encouraged, as the Red Storm encouraged a, quote, whiteout among fans on Johnny's Day at MSG. I actually wasn't going to wear it. It was a last-minute thing, Patino said, explaining that his wife prodded him repeatedly. My players were going to get a big kick out of it, and that's why I did it. So on Saturday afternoon, he strolled over to the Armani store a half block from his apartment and asked for a little help picking out some new digs. I couldn't fit in the old one, Patino said, drawing laughs. He came out with that on, you can't lose, said Jenkins, who shot 12 for 18 and added six assists, two steals, and two blocks. Joel Soriano had 12 points, seven rebounds, and five assists for the Red Storm 
who entered 0-5 against top 25 opponent this season. Glenn Taylor Jr. finished with a team-high 10 rebounds and 6 assists. Anytime we tried to be a little bit more aggressive, they made the extra pass and turned a good shot into a better shot, Creighton coach Greg McDermott said. They moved it so well today. Trey Alexander scored a season-best 31 points for the Blue Jays, who had won four straight in seven of nine. They were coming off an eye-opening blowout of UConn at home Tuesday night that ended the Huskies' 14-game winning streak and marked the program's first victory over a top-ranked team. Number three, Purdue, 84, Michigan, 76. Zach Eddy marked a season high with 35 points and 15 rebounds, helping the Boilermakers bounce back from a rough start to beat the host Wolverines. Purdue is closing in on the com- on a conference championship, building a two-and-a-half game lead over number, Illinois- number 12 Illinois with three regular season games left on its schedule. Doug McDaniel had 19 points for Michigan, which moved closer to clinching last place with its fifth straight loss. Number 7 Marquette, 88, Xavier, 64. Cam Jones celebrated his 22nd, 22nd birthday by scoring 34 points for a second straight game, and the Golden Eagles trounced the slumping Musketeers in Milwaukee. Jones shot 11 of 17 overall and 6 of 10 on three-point attempts. Tyler Kolek added 11 points, 10 assists, and 7 rebounds to help Marquette win for the 10th time in 11 games. Trey Green scored 16 points for Xavier, which lost its fourth straight. That was fun. I liked that one. My dad went to St. John's, so this is good news. <laughs> Next up from the PGA Tour, Nap holds on to win Mexico Open, earns Masters spot. From the Associated Press. PGA Tour rookie Jake Knapp lost a four-shot lead in seven holes and then held it together with a remarkable short game Sunday, closing with an even par 71 to win the Mexico Open at the Vidanta, V-I-D-A-N-T-A, and earn a trip to the Masters. Knapp said he still sends a text after each round to his grandfather, who died last year, and this message might require a lot of detail. He didn't hit a fairway until the he he didn't hit a fairway until the eighth hole and found only two the entire round. He never lost the lead, but twice allowed Sammy Valamaki of Finland to catch him. They were tied with six holes to play until Nap took over, getting up and down on four of the next five holes, one of them for birdie. I woke up in the middle of the night and could feel my heart racing, he said. I was more excited to get things going. I wasn't worried about performing. Maybe I should have been. Tita Green, Knapp had his worst performance, but he spent extra time Saturday night on his short game, and it won the day for him. We talked about it last night. If the ball striking is off, we're going to have to trust our hands. And we did that, grinding out some pretty tough pars, he said. It wasn't easy until the end. Another big par save on the par 3 17th gave Knapp a two-shot lead going to the par 5 closing hole at Valarada Vedanta. Valamaki, needing Eagle to have a chance, hit his drive down to the right side 
off a cart path and it nestled next to a boundary fence. He had to take a penalty drop, effectively ending his chances. Falamaki made par for a 69 to finish runner-up, still a big boost to his rookie season. Falamaki was among the leading 10 players from the European Tour to earn PGA Tour cards this year. Maybe just a couple more putts drop in, Falamaki said. I feel like I have the game to win over here. It just wasn't this Sunday. Bellinger returning to Cubs. Outfielder agrees to $80 million three-year deal from the Associated Press. Cody Bellinger is going back to the Chicago Cubs, agreeing to an $80 million three-year contract, a person familiar with the deal told the Associated Press. The deal is pending a physical. The slugger can opt out of the deal after each of the first two seasons. Bellinger is set to make $30 million this year, and then $30 million in 2025 if he stays with Chicago, and $20 million in 2026 if he doesn't opt out of the contract. Bellinger was among five significant free agents represented by Scott Boras, who went into spring training without agreements. Pitchers Blake Snell and Jordan Montgomery, third baseman Matt Chapman, and designated hitter J.D. Martinez remained, remain on the market. It was a much different experience than last offseason, when Bellinger finalized a $17.5 million one-year deal with the Cubs in December 2022. He then declined his end of a $25 million mutual option for 2024 and rejected a $20,325,000 qualifying offer from Chicago after a resurgent performance. Healthy again after years of injuries, Bellinger regained the form that made him one of baseball's biggest stars at the beginning of his career with the Los Angeles Dodgers. He had a career-best .307 with 26 homers, 97 RBIs, and 20 steals in 130 games in 2023. The 28-year-old Bellinger helped power the Cubs into playoff contention before the team faded in September. He had 48 RBIs in one 45-game stretch from August 1st to September 19th. He's part of this club. He's one of us. There was a little void in here, for sure, before he came back, pitcher Kyle Hendricks told reporters at the team's spring training facility in Arizona. Just seeing him in here, man, getting a hug, smiling... I know he'll be back to work soon, but yeah, just seeing his body, seeing his face in here was just amazing. Bellinger also gave Chicago a lift with his defensive versatility. He won a gold glove in 2016 for working in center, and he also plays a solid first base. He likely will be in center on opening day this year, giving top prospect Pete Crow Armstrong more time to develop. Just the impact that Bellinger had on our group last year from a personality standpoint, from a versatility standpoint, and then obviously his ability to produce at a high level really made our team and put ourselves in a position to have some success last year. Shortstop Dansby Swanson said in Arizona. And that's something that we've been looking forward to being able to get back. All right, now we've got some brief things from sports. For the Yankees, Marcus Stroman threw... Two and a third innings in his first spring training start with New York, giving up three runs, four hits, and a walk against the Philadelphia Phillies. The 32-year-old grew up on Long Island, about 55 miles from Yankee Stadium. Yankees left-hander Carlos Rodon threw two and two-thirds innings against the Toronto Blue Jays, giving up just one hit and one run 
in his first spring start, training start. For the Phillies, eight-hander Aaron Nola or two perfect innings for Philadelphia in his first spring training start since signing a $172 million seven-year off-season deal to remain with the Phillies. Nola struck out three during a 33-pitch outing against the Yankees. For the Mets, right-hander Kodai Senga won't throw for about three weeks as the team sees how his ailing shoulder responds to a platelet-rich plasma injection. Senga had a stellar rookie season for New York in 2023, finishing with a 12-7 record and a 2.98 ERA. Alright, from the NHL, Jets extend Coyote skid to 12 games. This is from the Associated Press. Kyle Connor scored his second goal of the game on a 3-on-1 break in overtime to give the Winnipeg Jets a 4-3 victory over Arizona on Sunday night, extending the Coyotes' losing streak to 12 games. Connor scored from the right side after two Arizona players fell deep in the other end of the ice after a failed breakaway attempt. Mark Schiffley had a goal and three assists. Gabriel Velarde also scored, and Josh Morrissey had three assists. Connor Hellebuck made 29 saves to help Winnipeg improve to 36-15-5 with its third straight win in six and seven games. Nick Schmalz scored twice, and Matthias Maselli added a goal for Arizona in the opener of a five-game trip. The Coyotes are 0-10-12 during this skid. Next up from the NBA, Jokic's third straight triple-double helps Nuggets sweep Warriors. From Associated Press. Nikola Jokic had 32 points, 16 rebounds, and 16 assists for his third straight triple-double and 18th of the season, leading the Denver Nuggets past the Golden State Warriors again in the 119-103 victory Sunday night. Jokic hit a Stephen Curry like a 40-footer as Denver rallied back for a 130-127 win at Chase Center on January 4th then topped Curry and company Sunday to sweep the four-game series, four season series. Jokic shot 13 for 24 on the way to hit his 122nd career regular season triple-double. All right, we're going to move on from sports. We're going to read on gardening. This is called Add Pop with Color Blaze Coleus by Norman Winter from the Tribune News Service. The excitement for spring planting is building at a feverish pitch, and many are wondering what they can do to add more pop to the landscape. The answer just may be color plays coleus, and I'm not just talking a dab. A dab is precisely how a lot of you have looked at coleus. One little coleus here should do just fine. This prevalent thinking means we are underutilizing a terrific bedding plant, one that will be looking showy literally for months. In my Georgia Zone 8 garden, I'm pretty much guaranteed 200 days of award-winning performance. By awards, I'm talking about a bunch. The 18 varieties of Color Blaze Coleus have won 383 awards and include more perfect scores than I have ever seen. The old days for looking for shade or sun tolerance are gone for the garden guy. I just plant the color I want where I want. 
There are several ways to knock it out of the park with Colorblaze Coleus. You can certainly reach true potential by mass planting at least seven in a large informal drift. Follow this up by planting companies in front. When Colorblaze Wicked Hot made its debut, I chose to use several, but be repetitive throughout the landscape like we suggest with shrubs and even trees. Gosh, I have fallen for this idea as it makes your eyes go from locale to locale in the garden, whereby you see the same flaming orange but different companies. Doing this with even three, four, or five gives the thought to everyone who visits that you have a plan in mind. In other words, you knew what you were doing. I've recently done that with Colorblaze Cherry Drop and Colorblaze Sedona Sunset. The Colorblaze Sedona Sunset looked like it was growing in a jungle, but the fact that you can see others nearby just made the planting work. The Colorblaze series are vegetatively producing varieties of coleus resistant to blooming until really late in the series, thereby providing non-stop vibrant, colorful foliage from spring until frost. Coleus prefers fertile or... Organic rich, well drained soil. Amend tightly heavy soil with 3 to 4 inches of organic matter, tilling to a depth of 6 to 8 inches. Space plants are recommended per variety purchased. Keep the coleus watered and mulched during the growing season. Feed with a light application of a slow release 1266 fertilizer a month after transplanting and again in midsummer. Pinching in mid and late summer keeps the plant bushy. The coleus is a tropical plant and can certainly give a carnival-like atmosphere to the garden. Grow in the shade or filtered light sun gardens with Let's Dance hydrangeas, soprano impetines, and shadowland host as. Use in full sun as a backdrop in your pollinator garden. The colorblaze coleus makes every companion flower even more beautiful. Since the early 1990s, the coleus has gone from an obscure plant to one of unprecedented popularity, largely thanks to varieties like the Colorblaze series. The old hairdressing commercial saying, a little dab will do, may work for Bracelicreen, but when it comes to Colorblaze coleus, go bold. From entertainment, Greta Gerwig breaks her silence on Oscars snub. Greta Gerwig is, quote, just happy to celebrate Barbie at the Oscars. The 40-year-old filmmaker was a notable omission from the Best Director shortlist at the upcoming Academy Awards, and while she is disappointed Margot Robbie missed out on a nomination for Best Actress, she insisted she isn't sad about being snubbed herself because the film is up for a total of eight accolades, including a Best Adaptated Screenway nod for herself and her husband co-writer Noah Baumbach. She told Time Magazine, of course I wanted it for Margot, but I'm just happy we all get to be there together. A friend's mom said to me, I can't believe you didn't get nominated. I said, but I did. I got an Oscar nomination. And she was like, oh, that's wonderful for you. And I was like, I know. Despite the overwhelming box office success for Barbie around the world, Gerwig insisted it wasn't inevitable that it would be a hit. She said, I remember thinking, if this works, everyone is going to think later that it was inevitable. They'll say, well, it was Barbie but that's not guaranteed. Another from entertainment, Camila Cabello felt, quote, kind of lonely after breakup. Camila Cabello has felt kind of lonely as she gets used to life after her breakup. The Havana hitmaker, who split from ex Shawn Mendes in 2024, 
2021, before briefly rekindling their romance last spring, is pouring her emotions into her new music as she finds herself, quote, wrestling with her feelings. While stopping short of confirming whether the new songs are about her relationship with Mendez, she told Puss Puss Magazine, It's me sitting with this feeling of understanding that I feel really confused as a 26-year-old who I really felt I was in love with this person. Now I feel kind of lonely and small and weird, but at the same time, I'm an adult, and I feel so strong in other areas of my life, but not this one. There's just the wrestling of those feelings without it being kind of neat or in a box. You can't really say that it's a sad song. You can't really pin it down. It's just kind of me wrestling with these feelings and me kind of being really present on a particular feeling and exploring it. I feel like a lot of songs on the album are that. Cabello and Mendez initially struck up a relationship in 2019 and called it quits in 2021. Okay, then we're going to do some birthdays for February 26th. Actor-director Bill Duke is 81. Actor Marta Kristen from Lost in Space is 79. Singer Mitch Ryder is 79. Keyboardist Jonathan Kane of Journey is 74. Singer Michael Bolton is 71. Actor Greg German from Ally McBeal is 66. Actor Mark DeCasas from Hawaii Five-0 is 60. Actor Jennifer Grant is 58. Bassist Tom Comerford of Audio Slave and Rage Against the Machine is 56. Singer Erika Badu is 53. Actor Naz Jabrani from Superior Donuts is 52. Singer Rika Wade of Society of Soul is 52. Singer Kyle Norman of Jagged Edge is 49. Actor Greg Ricart from The Young and the Restless is 47. Drummer Chris Kulos of OAR is 45. Singer Kareen Bailey Ray is 45. Singer Nate Roos of Fun is 42. All right, we're just going to wrap up by doing Today in History. Today's highlight. On February 26, 1993, a truck bomb built by Islamic extremists exploded in the parking garage of the North Tower of New York's World Trade Center, killing six people and injuring more than a thousand others. The bomb failed to topple the North Tower into the South Tower, as the terrorists had hoped. Both structures were destroyed in the 9-11 attack, eight years later. On this date, in 1815, Napoleon Bonaparte escaped from exile on the island of Elba and headed back to France in a bid to regain power. In 1904, the United States and Panama proclaimed a treaty under which the U.S. agreed to undertake efforts to build a ship canal across the Panama Isthmus. In 1942, How Green Was My Valley won the Academy Award for Best Picture of 1941, beating out nine other films, including The Maltese Falcon and Citizen Kane. In 1945, authorities ordered a midnight curfew at night bars, nightclubs, bars, and other places of entertainment across the nation. In 1952, Prime Minister Winston Churchill announced that Britain had developed its own atomic bomb. In 1966, South Korean troops sent to fight in the Vietnam War massacred at least 380 civil civilians in Go Dai Hamlet. In 1998, a jury in Armorio, Texas, rejected an $11 million lawsuit brought by Texas cattlemen who blamed Oprah Winfrey's talk show for a price fall after a segment on food safety that included a discussion about mad cow disease. In 2005, Egyptian President Hosni 
Mubarak, M-U-B-A-R-A-K, ordered his country's constitution changed to allow presidential challengers in, up, in an upcoming fall election. In 2022, Trayvon Martin, 17, was shot to death in Stanford, Florida, during an altercation with Neighborhood Watch volunteer George Zimmerman, who said he acted in self-defense. In 2023, a hot air balloon burst into flames during a sunrise flight over the ancient Egyptian city of Luxor and then plummeted a thousand feet to earth, killing 19 tourists. In 2014, Republican Arizona Governor Jan Brewer vetoed a bill pushed by social conservatives that would have allowed people with sincerely held religious, religious beliefs to refuse to serve gays. In 2016, New Jersey Governor Chris Christie stunned the Republican establishment by endorsing Donald Trump for president. And that brings us to the end of today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for February 26th. The Nonpareil can be heard each weekday at 5 p.m. I'm Julia Witt from Drake University in Des Moines. Thank you for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. 